Well, happy Thanksgiving to you, and I hope you had a little bit of time over the last few days to spend some time thinking about all of God's goodness towards us. That's one of the things that uh, I think Thanksgiving helps us do is it stops uh, kind of the regular things of life, and I know that as I was going through my daily devotionals this week, there were several things that I was just thanking the Lord for, and one of those things that I'm most thankful for right now is our Christmas season as we're getting ready for that. That's a great time, and our choir and orchestra, our jam students are about to be presenting stuff they've been working on all through the fall, and uh, you'll be hearing about that in the next few weeks, but that's really important for us, uh, and I hope that you'll make time to come to that. You know, a lot of times we, we don't know if that's something we need to be a part of or whatnot. Let me just say you ought to be a part of that. You need to be a part of it. Because it's a great time for you to have a gospel engagement with somebody uh, and invite them to come be part of that celebration. Uh, and I always just feel like that Christmas hasn't actually started until I've done a couple of things. Uh, I guess you could say a Christmas tree might be important, maybe, I don't know. But that's not really where it is for me. Honestly, it's, it's not Christmas until we've had our jam performance and our choir and orchestra performance. And then normally until I've gone to another concert, I've got to get three, you know, just to kind of get ready. Uh, ready for Christmas. I just love that time of year and I'm excited for it. And as you think about those two opportunities, don't lose sight of gospel engagements. You know that we are really getting close and we're within shot of that 50,000 that we're hoping for. Uh, and, and that kind of rolls over in the middle of January. That'll be the one-year mark of that. And uh, those gospel engagements are all around. And I was just reminded of that this week. They're around if you just kind of are aware of it. I was on the phone with somebody who was helping me with a customer service issue and you have to provide your email address. And the lady said, so what are you like, some kind of pastor or something? You know, and I was like, yeah, guilty as charged. Um, I am. And, uh, and it was interesting because she was just at a time in her life where she needed to talk. And uh, our customer service issue didn't take that long, but the issue that she was having in her life just needed some encouragement. And I was just so grateful that something as simple as a customer service call turned into a gospel engagement. I mean, it just doesn't take long if you'll open your eyes and your ears and allow God to direct those things in your life. Today, we're actually going to finish our series on navigation uh, with a sermon that we're calling Examination. And when you think about examination, you might think about a couple of things like uh, your yearly physical, right? That's an examination maybe you look forward to or don't look forward to. Uh, you might think about a board that you've had to sit in front of trying to get a certification done or maybe you're thinking about uh, the end of the year and the tests that are coming uh, for your finals and those kinds of things. When we talk about examination, there's some interesting things that kind of come out of that. Uh, we're really looking at examining our life in front of Christ's life today. That's a very important thing for us to do. And he encourages us to do that in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. In our last sermon, we saw the necessity of Jesus Christ being the completion of the law and the prophets. And what that meant was that he had to live a life that satisfied the demands of the law. So he lived a sinless life, and then he further satisfied that demand of the law by taking the punishment that should have been mine and should have been yours when he died on the cross. And that's kind of where we were at as we were looking at what it meant for him to be the completion of the Old Testament, how he was the person who brought it all together in one place. And today we're going to see how we're going to need to examine ourselves in regards to righteousness. And we talk about righteousness, that's the life of Christ. He lived a righteous life, and we have to look at his life and make an examination of our own life to see if we're living in a way that reflects that. It's really important for us to do that regularly, I think. Uh, we need to look at what Jesus said was important and see if our lives are matching up to his teaching. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. 
And we're going to start again in verse 17, as we did last week. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. The words will be on the screen. And as always, I invite you to pick up a Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'll give you a copy at our Next Step Center today, free of charge. We'd love for you to have that. We think it's important for all of us to have a Bible. And I would encourage you today as well, as I do regularly, to put down your phone, put it on airplane mode. I don't want you to be disturbed by the latest Facebook notification of the cat video you haven't seen this morning. I know those are important to us. But we really want to hear from the Lord this morning, don't we? We want to hear what he might have to say to us. So verse 17, Matthew chapter 5, let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we read this this morning. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus must have been a very difficult person for people to figure out and understand when they were listening to him. I think it must have been increasingly difficult as they listened to this Sermon on the Mount to try to figure out who he was and what he was trying to say to them because in so many ways he seemed to them to be contradictory, if you think about it. Now, he wasn't contradictory, but he seemed to be, and I want you to see that because last week we didn't really look at the cultural implications of what happened when he was talking about this. But when Jesus was talking about fulfilling the law and the prophets, and then he uses these words about scribes and Pharisees today, we don't make sense of a lot of that. But culturally, that was very, very important to the people who were listening to what Jesus had been saying. And I think that's a little bit different in the day that we live. uh, Because I think people uh, don't exactly revere institutions in the way that they revered the scribes and the Pharisees. And we'll kind of come to that in, in just a minute. Last week, we looked at this idea of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. And, and one of the things that we may not have seen was the social issue. See, Jesus had often been accused of violating things of the law, like the Sabbath. You may remember, Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath one day, and people just literally lost their minds. Now, maybe you've heard this phrase. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase that it's okay to work on the Sabbath if you have to get your ox out of the ditch? Have you ever heard that phrase? That's a quote from Jesus, right? And you think about what he means by that. Uh, What was he talking about when he said that to people? What he was saying is that it wasn't wrong for you to do good on the Sabbath. He was saying, yes, the Sabbath was something that you were to rest on. God modeled that for us, didn't he? He created six days. On the seventh day, he rested. But people had been saying, well, there's more to it than that. It's not just that you rest. It's how you rest. And Jesus said, look, all of you understand that it's okay for me to heal someone on the Sabbath because you would understand that if your animal, if you had an ox and it fell in a ditch, you could pick it up and get it out of the ditch, right? Now, if you've heard that phrase, what that generally means, if somebody says that today, they'll say it to me a lot. And, if, and please refrain from this one. This is, help, help your pastor out. If you come up to me and say, I had to get my ox out of the ditch, that basically means you just gave me an excuse for why you had to work, you know? Uh, th- that's not exactly what he was talking about right there, was it? What he was saying, it was, it was okay to do good. So we might put it like this today. We need to rest on the Sabbath. But if you were driving home today and you saw someone who'd had a wreck and their car was in the ditch, should you just pass by and go, you know, sorry, it's the Sabbath? Well, no. I mean, logically, that makes sense, right? That you would stop and do good to someone. 
But you see, they had taken these these things to extremes. And the scribes and the Pharisees had taken the law of God, and they were the interpreters of the law of God, and they had done something very, very different with it. Listen to what one writer described it like this. He said, when the law said, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, these scribes and the Pharisees, they could tell you precisely what one could do on the Sabbath and still keep the law and what one could not do. Thus, it was possible to move about, but only a Sabbath day's journey, to eat, but not to cook, to bandage a person who had become hurt, but not to apply ointment or anything actively to promote healing and so on. So you can get a cut, you can put a Band-Aid on it, but no Neosporin, because now you have violated the Sabbath. Because you understand, right? The level of minutia that was going on was crazy. And so as Jesus begins talking about this, he says something that would have been very difficult for people to figure out. He says, unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you're in trouble. Now, when he said that, everyone around him must have gone, well, that's impossible. That was an institution, these two groups of people that were revered. And, and I realize, again, we, we don't revere many institutions. We, we don't revere the presidency in this country anymore. It, it, it's not the institution, which it should be, by the way. That's scriptural. The institution, not the man, the institution. What we do is if we like the president, we revere it. If we don't, then we're absolved from it, right? We used to revere things like people who were public servants, you know, teachers, law enforcement. I mean, you understand, but we don't do that anymore. But in their day, this was a big deal for them to revere the scribes and the Pharisees. If you've ever read the gospel, you may understand uh, this a little bit differently because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it seems like these two groups of people, the scribes and the Pharisees, are always at odds with Jesus. They're always standing against him and trying to trap him. And when we read those interactions, we probably don't have a favorable view of the scribes and the Pharisees but when Jesus spoke these words, everyone thought about these two groups of people as being the holiest, most religious, the wisest people in all of their country because they weren't just religious leaders. They had political power as well. And they were seen as the interpreters of the law. The scribes were experts in the scriptures. They were regarded as scholars who could interpret the law and the scripture for people. And this was no small task for people because you understand that there was not access to the word of God. You couldn't just go buy a copy at your local Lifeway store and bring it home and read it for yourself. Someone had to read it for you, interpret it for you, and even if you could have had access to it, literacy was not a thing. So the scribes were very important. The Pharisees were experts in the law. About 6,000 Pharisees lived in the nation of Israel at the time. They were scattered throughout all the country. And so everywhere you went, there were these people who took great pride in being experts in the law of God down to the very minutiae made them prideful in their position, in fact. Look again at verse 20, and let's see what Jesus is really saying to us today about this examination. For I say that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, his listeners thought, well, then I don't have a chance. There's no hope for me. Because I'm not as as holy as that guy. Think about it like this. Think about the person who's the most moral person that you know. Maybe it's a person in your neighborhood, the best neighbor that you have, right? 
Or, or if you're a parent, the person who you think's the best parent that you've ever seen, and you just look at them and you think to yourself, I'll, ne- I'll never measure up to that. I, I'll never be as moral as they are. I'll never be as wise as they are. I'll never be as understanding as they are. And what Jesus is basically saying to us, until you can surpass that person's righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait. Jesus, are you kind of setting the bar high here this morning. And you're saying that I'm not getting in? And he says, yep, that's exactly right. And that was the point of what he was saying. He wanted you to see it. He wants us to see it this morning. Because what he's trying to get us to see is that we can never be righteous enough on our own. Won't happen. You can't do it. It's simply impossible. And the reason he points this out is to reveal something about himself. It's only through the righteousness that Jesus Christ brings to us, the gift that he brings through his life where he has now lived and paid the demands of the law and the cross, living a sinless life, that's the only way that you and I can ever enter into heaven. It's never that we can be righteous enough on our own. What happens is, is this term is used in the scripture sometimes and theologians use it. It's this idea of what's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now do not get lost right here. I need you to pay very close attention because if you don't understand what I'm about to say, you may not be saved. Imputed righteousness of Christ. What that basically means is this. You couldn't be righteous enough on your own, and I couldn't be righteous enough on my, my own. So what God did is he allowed Christ to come and live righteously, die righteously, be raised from the dead righteously, and God gives us the righteousness of Christ. So here's what happens. When God gives us that, he no longer sees me anymore. He sees Jesus. He no longer sees you anymore. He sees Jesus. Listen to how this is explained in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When the apostle Paul wrote this phrase, by his doing you are in Christ, what he meant is that by God's own doing, God did something when you couldn't do it. God did something and gave us three things in Jesus Christ. You notice what he said, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And that's really important for us to understand this morning because salvation doesn't come from some moral code that you're able to keep. That's not how it works. Salvation doesn't come because you're actually good enough to deserve it. And if you think you deserve it this morning, you have no understanding of what Jesus came to do. If you think you deserve it this morning, you're probably not saved. It's righteousness given to us. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. What could I ever do? What God is saying is is that there's not enough good deeds that we could do. And when Jesus said, unless your righteousness can be better than these people who excel in keeping the law, and everyone would say, well, we can't. We, We can't be better than them. They're experts in it. They understand it. They're the best in our society. And he says, exactly. It won't work. It's only through my righteousness. You see, heaven's outside of our reach. We can't get there on our own. And for us to be able to get there, to have access to God the Father, the only way for that to be possible was through the righteousness and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because if God were to look at me and he were to look at you, 
and the righteous deeds that we think we had done, what God would have to do is condemn us to hell because of our sin. Because it doesn't matter how righteous you are, your sin always outweighs your righteousness. That's the point of of what it means when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we can't stand before God on our own. The only way we can do that is if God looks at me and I've received the gift of Jesus Christ, of salvation, I've surrendered my life to his lordship, and what happens is God doesn't look at me anymore. He looks at me, and it's like Jesus, if you could imagine it maybe like this, it's like you stand before God in judgment, and God says, Jeff Mims, and Jesus says, no, no, he's with me. He calls your name. No, 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 he's with me. She's with me. I died for them, Lord. God, God the Father, I, I died for them. They have received the forgiveness of my life. They have been cleansed by my blood, and they're living in the power of my resurrection, and I have died for them. That's the only way that we can stand. It's a free gift to God, of God to those who would believe in Jesus Christ, and it's given to us. We sometimes sing a song here that says, He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. That's the perfect example of what he's saying here. Jesus Christ became sin. That's what we looked at last week. He died in your place. He died in my place on the cross so that we might become his righteousness because on our own, our righteousness falls short. And that's the idea of the picture that I'm trying to get you to see. It's why every other religion on the earth actually falls short because it's works-based. It's always do this, do this, do this, do this, and then you'll finally be good enough. And sometimes you're good enough only to get in this level of heaven, and sometimes you're good enough to get in this level, and sometimes you have to be reincarnated thousands of thousands of times to get to the next higher life. It doesn't work. You're never going to be good enough. I can't be good enough. We can't be good enough. It won't work. I think there's a reason we gravitate towards trying to earn our way into heaven, and it honestly has to do with control. I think we like to have things that we can control, that we can measure up against. We love to do the bare minimum. What do I have to do to skate in, you know? What's what's the thing that I need to do just to kind of get there? And, And if I could, that would work. But you know what? You can't appease a holy God with trying to be good enough because being good isn't the problem. Sin is the problem. And the problem for you and I most often is that we're wicked beyond our own recognition. We minimize our faults, maximize everyone else's faults, right? That's how you are. You you don't see what's wicked in your life as easily as you see what's wicked in mine. You don't see what's wicked in your life as easily as what you see the wickedness in your coworker's life or your family member's life who's just driving you crazy over the holidays, right? I mean, that's how it works. You're very easily able to see that in someone else's life. But if we don't understand the wickedness in our own life, we'll never understand that the only way that we can go before the Lord is through the righteousness of Christ. Well, that leads us to this kind of second point of application from these verses. Because once we've come to know Christ, there's a subtle temptation that exists for all of us. And that's that this salvation was something that we had to do with. And that 
we earned it or in some way and that we deserve it and, and it makes us a little bit prideful. It's a real subtle and sneaky thing. And, and Jesus actually said something about this uh, in a story. It was a parable that he gave in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, again talking about a Pharisee. And I want to read it for you. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Don't breeze by that. And viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. In this story that Jesus gave, he shows how it's really easy for us to start thinking pretty highly of ourselves, to become a little bit smug, to become a little bit prideful. And here you had this Pharisee who was very much uh, pleased with himself. And as he stood and began to pray that day, he really wanted to glorify himself rather than glorify God. Did you catch his prayer? God, I thank you I'm not like these people. I thank you that I do all of these things. That puts me in a category better than these people. And I'm so glad that that's easy for me to be there, Lord. It's an exciting thing that I'm there. And it's easy for us to get up, uh, kind of caught up in that if we're not careful. One of the things that begins to happen once we come to know Christ, we start living this life. And the further you get away from the old life that you lived, it's really easy to become kind of that religious person who understands the commands of God and wants to live them out, but you lose sight of the heart behind the command. I want to be really, really clear about this. This Pharisee was proud to tell everyone he fasted from food twice a week. Oh, that's important, isn't it? He must have been a good man. Do you know how many times the law told people they were to fast? Once a year. But this guy, I mean, he excelled at all things. He managed what he liked. He was good at what he wanted to do. And so he stood up and was able to say before the Lord, look at who I am and all that I do. I tell you, it's tempting for those of us who have experienced forgiveness to look at people who are not saved and be very happy that we are different than they are. Can I give you just, I don't know. Have you seen the Captain Obvious commercials? Do you know Captain Obvious? Do you? This means yes. A little slow, a little slow this morning. Can I give you a Captain Obvious statement? If you're not different than lost people, you're lost. So being happy about that, what, what's that to be happy about? Don't you think that's a, a baseline expectation that your life should be different than someone who's lost? So sometimes we look around and it's like, well, I'll tell you one thing, I'm not like those immoral people. Well, great, you shouldn't be. I'll tell you one thing, I don't treat people like they treat, well, good for you. Right? I mean, think about what we're saying when we do that, and we all do it. We look and, and we become a little bit prideful, a little bit smug, and we forget, who did the saving? Jesus. 
Who did the work on the cross? What, what did you do to earn the salvation? What did I do to earn salvation? I didn't do anything, right? So, so the idea that I can look around at people and say, well, I'm better than them. No, I'm not. I'm just saved. That's it. Mercy reached down and touched me. Not through any, any great deed of my own. Not through the fact that I figured it out some way. No way. The only way that God saved me is because God did the work. God softened my heart. He quickened my spirit to understand that Christ was calling me. So to look around and become smug, you understand how difficult this is and dangerous this is. The problem becomes is that we become satisfied with ourself because we can see the difference in our lives and sometimes those who are lost. But the question is, do we see ourselves the way that God sees us? The heart. The outward appearance is pretty easy. But your heart, it's a different story. The outward appearance is easy to fool. I mean, you, you can, you can kind of dress it up. You can do the right things. Can, can I tell you? Every church in America has got people just like that. Oh, I mean, they're religious. Wouldn't miss a Sunday. But they're the worst kind of people that you can imagine when it comes on Monday. You think that that's going to get us where we need to be? You think God's pleased with us when we're religious? I tithe. Well, good, good for you. You obeyed the Lord. I came to church today. Oh, good. You stay around long enough, we'll give you a little sticker. Now think about that. What about your heart? What about my heart? Can I tell you that this is dangerous, dangerous territory. It's dangerous for a church that becomes smug because they think they have figured it out. It's dangerous for believers who become smug. We ought to be obeying the Lord. Doesn't he say that you love me, you obey me? Right? That's baseline Christianity, isn't it? But what about my heart? Let me tell you what your heart can do. Your heart can grow cold. I was thinking about the book of Revelation recently. You remember there are seven churches that are mentioned at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. If you've never read it, there are these seven churches representing some geographic locations and things like that. And one of those churches gets a rebuke from the Lord when it says, you abandoned your first love. You've done good. I see your deed, but, but you, you abandoned your first love. See, it's a matter of the heart. Let me tell you something. That's hard. That's hard for me. I tell you what most of us have to guard against is this idea of taking a little bit of what God's given us and turning it into something I call checklist Christianity. Checklist Christianity is I do these certain things and I check my little box, I create this checklist that works for me so I can record my righteousness and when I've done all my little checklist, then I'm happy. Now, I haven't asked God if he's happy with me. I haven't asked him if he's happy with my heart. 
I haven't asked if my heart is behind the command, right? There are three things that kind of make that type of Christianity flawed. Let me give them to you this morning because it's important. Number one is that you created the checklist and you based it on things you thought were important. Now, what that means is that you default to the things you do well and you leave alone the things you don't do very well, right? So, you create your checklist. It differs than, than my checklist because my checklist is only going to have the things that I do well. I'm leaving off all the things that I struggle with because those aren't important to God because they're not important to me, right? So every week I go down and I have my little checklist and I'm really happy with myself and I can give myself a little sticker for the week and just go on. Your checklist is different because you do the things that you like and the things that are easy for you and the things that you struggle with, you just ignore and you push to the side and you don't let the Lord in to speak to you about those things. But since you created the checklist, it's flawed. Second thing is you're the judge. So if you're the judge of your own checklist, that means that you'll always provide yourself a way out when you don't meet up to that standard. I mean, it's pretty easy, right? There was an excuse. Now, you'll judge someone else harshly by your own checklist, but when it comes to you, if you can't get the checklist right for the week, there was a reason you couldn't do it. I mean, that's what I do, right? I can explain away every sin I've ever done, can't you? I can tell you why I lost my temper. I can tell you why I did what I did. I can tell you why I had this attitude in my heart. And it may not be right, but I can tell you why I did it. I'm the judge. It's flawed. There's only one judge. It doesn't matter what I say. It matters what he says. Right? Third thing that makes this dangerous is the, check, the checklist allows you to focus on doing things rather than becoming something. I sometimes wonder if we really have that down, right? And here's why. I don't know if it's this way for you, but it is for me. It's a lot easier to do things than to allow the Holy Spirit to form me to become something, right? Because when I'm doing things, and I've got my little checklist, and I'm going down through it. I'm, for instance, I read my Bible four out of five days this week. That's good. And it is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But did I allow time for the Holy Spirit to speak to me about those areas of my life that he's trying to transform? Or did I just checklist it, right? Oh, I'm going to go serve this week. I need to get my service in. I, I need to make sure that I'm serving in some area of our church. This is really important. I go do that, and I come back, and I feel good about it. That's a lot easier because in the frenetic pace of our lives, the busier we are, right? Oh, man, I don't have to listen to the still, small voice of the Lord at all. You guys know that my favorite Bible character is Elijah. I love the prophet Elijah. If you've never read the prophet Elijah, go read him this afternoon. You'll, you'll, you'll find a fascinating case study. He shows up in the book of 1 Kings, uh, and you can find a lot of him in verse, I mean, chapter 18 and chapter 19. And then his name shows up again in the book of James at the very last chapter. And I'd encourage you to read 1 Kings 18 and 19 and then go to James. But one of the things that you find about Elijah is that when he was doing things for the Lord, one of the things that happened is that he stopped hearing the still small voice of the Lord and God had to take him apart, set him aside to a place where he could hear the still small voice of the Lord. 
He got busy doing things. Well, you can be busy doing a lot of things. But that's an important thing for us to think about this morning. See, every one of us this morning needs to take time and, and have a moment of examination. So it could be one of, of two things. I would ask all of us to examine ourselves and be certain that we are of the faith. Not that we're religious, not that we're checklist Christians, but I mean that we're really saved, that God has saved us. Not that we did something, but that God did something in Christ Jesus, and we recognize that and we repent of our sins. Second thing I would ask all of us to do is to not fall in the trap that I fall into so easily, and that's this idea of checklisting everything, being smug, proud of who I am, as if I did anything. See, that, that makes you thankful when you realize that. It changes things, doesn't it? It makes me thankful to understand that Christ Jesus did something in my life. Not that I did it. Saved by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, that's what the Pharisee was doing. When you stand up and start boasting, you've forgotten who did the work. Maybe the third thing for us this morning. As we talk about what it means for the Holy Spirit to examine our lives. In just a second, I'm going to ask us just to bow our heads. And if we claim to be of the faith, would you allow him the space to examine your life? The question is not whether or not you're pleased with yourself or I'm pleased with you. Really, the question is, is God pleased with us? As he looks at our heart, is he pleased? Because that's what we want. Would you bow your heads with me? This is that time of response. If you've never been saved, if you know that you're not of the faith, I would invite you right now to call out to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to save you. you are of the faith and you've been stuck in checklist Christianity would you repent of that and ask God to get to the heart give the Lord room to speak to your heart this morning Lord, our righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees or anyone else. And so we humbly come before you today and ask you to move in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would warm the heart of every person in this room. Make their hearts sensitive. Make our hearts sensitive so that we can hear your voice and obey. God, where we've become prideful, would you forgive us? Lord, shape our hearts 
until they're pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.